now we don't have any value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dev Sentence. I am joined by the um, Magistral Gareth so. and the uh, plenipotent Langdon. I'm the Joker again. Mm. The Joker is plenipotent. The... He is. No one ever like picked up on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm always. I'm also like super fertile due to the <laughs> due to the treatments I've been getting. It's uh, yeah, it's real hell on my wife. Yeah, that's why you're playing important because um, some sort of sea nation has adopted you as its uh, ambassador to us uh, lowly humans. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's um, going to come up in a book we're going to read uh, later in the year, by the way. Uh, but... what, which one? <laughs> uh, Brainworms. What are you talking about? Oh, right, Brainworms. Yeah. We also need yeah, to do um, the Marigold, Sorry. right? We oh, do, yeah. yeah. That's a plenty yeah. potent book right there. That Did you know that has all the kinds of things I love mold? Yeah. I've told Did you guys how I love mold, right? Everybody loves mold. I've got mold in my body now, and it's made me stronger. Sure, it's made me weaker as well. You know, the lungs don't work as good, and I have pneumonia-like symptoms all year round. But that's real, by the way. Um, but I also can see into the mold mind, and that's been very uh, soothing. Death is coming. Worth it. Worth it. Did you know that a lot of books are written? I don't. I don't see where you're going with this. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of books, is, is what I'm saying. Which, That's crazy. That is crazy. Today we are going to talk about one of those books. This book is completely normal. And it's regular. Nothing. I'd say yes. Uh, nothing untoward <laughs> happens in this book. Um, People certainly don't fantasize about becoming moths, and if they also ha... go on. If you had a set of characters and you imagined them in your mind right now, your powerful minds, um, these characters I sh uh, have the right amount, the normal amount of arms and of legs. Um, yeah. The desire to kill is at the regular level. Um, yeah. Super if you, regular. If you. Yeah, if you had not yet picked up on what book we're covering from this description, uh, we are going to be discussing um, The Deloriad by... It, do I pronounce it like the state? Missouri mm -hmm. Williams? Yeah. yeah. I, it, okay. It's like, I, I don't know why it's a, it's a pun on Tennessee Williams. I, oh, I, I had not. Yeah. That went over my <laughs> it, head. It took me about <laughs> six months of having this book on my shelf before I realized, wait, Missouri Williams, Tennessee Williams. Yeah, is there any relation there? It, 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 I have no idea. Like, I mean, I wonder if it's name. Do we know if it's yeah, exactly? A pen I was going to say, we we don't. I, we don't. That would be I, so I, fucking don't... funny if it was just their actual name and their parents did that to them. I think it is. <laughs> she she mentions in the um, acknowledgments her um, her grandparents being named Williams, so we know at least her surname is Williams. Um, so. And, what if she has never add, realized that her name is a pun? I, I, mean, I want to add another level right to it. She's just realized. Guys, guys, this feels like a, a Philip K. Dick sort of like conspiracy because the bad review posted on the New York Times for this novel was written by one J. Robert Lennon. 
Um, <laughs> so John Lennon reviewed the DeLorean by Missouri Williams. Um, the DeLorean, this is a normal podcast about normal things. Uh, the DeLorean is a book about Prague um, in a post-apocalyptic setting where everything has gone wrong, but mostly nuclear stuff has gone wrong and uh, bombs have gone off. And uh, the only survivors are the matriarch. Well, before the book begins, the only survivors are the matriarch and their uncle, that is her brother. And they proceed to um, repopulate the earth with their incestuous uh, offspring. That offspring, uh, when we start the book, has already had its own offspring. So we're talking about, you know, the genetical effects of um, long-term incest. And the book focuses on, well, many of the characters, right? But mostly on two of the younger, um, two siblings from the younger generation, Dolores, as the name might imply, and Agate. Um, That's the plot, (laughs) I guess. So Uh, Dolores uh, has like the most birth defects yeah um, no no nice way of saying that uh, yeah. she has uh, she's non-verbal um we don't know exactly how intelligent she is uh, that's kind of left to the end of the novel um she does not have legs or, or, does she have yeah she doesn't she has limited no she she has legs but they don't function ah right if yeah, i recall yeah yeah they she's often like compared to a worm or a grub or, yeah. or the moon, um, and Agafe is um, physically regular, but she has epileptic seizures, and is kind of hated by the rest of the group because they just find her odd. Uh, she, I mean, she is odd. She doesn't talk a whole lot. Uh, kind of is in her own head a lot, and yeah. is hated because of it. I think importantly, both these characters also have their own, not just internal. Um, worlds, but their own perspective and approach to reality. Dolores seems to, again, perhaps tied to um, her level of intelligence or her ability to express herself. She tends to focus on hyper focus on you know smaller things like a beetle or a stretch of land or and so on. While Agatha, um, at some point, her consciousness is described as so thin and non-present that she kind of like the chapter not the chapters the segments which are described from her perspective swim between the characters right so think about her consciousness like water it's so thin and rarefied and like not wholly there that it allows her to kind of dive and dip into the perspectives of others and imagine herself seeing reality um, outside of their eyes which makes the novel a really hard read by the way they, oh, they, yeah. they play Especially it they play things. it that they play it that worm image a lot with that the, the sense of burrowing and the sense of like passage through which i i'm always taken by anything that's got that worm shit in it um <laughs> this has tons like oh yeah. god yeah yeah i love the <laughs> I pages think... of this that are just nasty yeah yeah some parts of this book by the way i don't know trigger warnings are no longer popular but I guess heads up to anybody who wants to read this book. This book, um, me and, and Gareth were chatting about this. Like, it's really surface level or childish to say 
oh, it's meant to be cool or whatever. It's not meant to be cool in the sense that the quality is not the point. The quality is there to discuss lots of things and we'll cover all those things. But it is a very um, visceral and non-apologetic book which presents people with various disabilities, um, mental health conditions, lots of violence. Um, there's explicit scenes of sexual violence and so on and so forth. And there's no mercy, right? Like if you expect someone to come to swoop in in the last chapter and say, and all those people were bad because they did bad things, that doesn't happen. Um, the, the reviews yeah. for this book have been... Um, well, it's, it's odd. But we, we mentioned that New York Times review, which was a bad review, um, pretty yeah. much. It obviously mentioned it's a very well-written book, it's very imaginative, it does different things with the dystopian genre than we've seen. But uh, it was a negative review in like the biggest book review in the world. Um, the smaller reviews are just uh, uniformly bad. Well, their first bad reviews in the sense that they reviewed a book as being bad, and then the bad reviews as in they are just dumb. They are themselves bad at being reviews. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, if you look up just the word DeLorean on YouTube, um, you'll see just the, the limits of how badly a book can be discussed by really stupid people. Uh, luckily, none of them has more than 3K views. Um, and also they're not on this podcast. No. The, the um, idea of looking up a book review on YouTube fills me with a kind of deep <laughs> dread and loathing that uh, <laughs> makes me want to kill myself immediately or do grave harm unto others. Um, especially classic. Especially, I've been especially kind of trying like when, to find yeah. like just some good YouTube book reviews because it, it would be nice to just <laughs> just before bedtime just lie down in my bed with my laptop and open my, my laptop and see some like book reviews of books i haven't read and learn about them that would be that would be much nicer than watching i don't know some some fascists play airsoft or something which seems or learning about the most recent see. learning about the most recent racist murder by the state that's always a soothing bedtime treat for yeah. me in america and yeah obviously warhammer law um uh, yeah but, <laughs> there, but there are no good um youtube book reviewers like literally none i've never found one yeah, there are a few that are passable, but they're like, okay, that's, that would work in like a high school. But yeah, it, it's it's a nightmare out there. I'm sure TikTok is no worse. And I think, better, but um, and I think in this, oh, I know people case, who deal with book talk. It's it's a fucking nightmare, Gareth. That's a fucking wasteland out there. <laughs> if you want to talk about functional illiteracy, like you know how to pronounce words, but you don't know what they mean, um, that this is a hotbed of it. Yeah, it's, it's I think been... in this case, like even I'll say I say it's a different way. Like I also struggled with this book. Like I had to use my brain to grasp its concepts. It's not. It's very subtle, right? It's mm. very subtle, um, and it's also dealing with a lot of stuff where you need uh, a bit of background to understand exactly what's uh, being done here. Like. And, and this is not a criticism, right? It's just a fact. Like, do, does the average reader of something like this know, like, that part of what this book is doing is ra uh, railing against the 
scholastic influence of Aquinas. Aquinas is in this book, by the way, listeners, mm -hmm. like St. Thomas Aquinas, the philosopher and uh, clergyman, and like making a point that the whole idea of didactic, supposedly logical and very masculine and violent um, way of creating knowledge, that that has influenced like the creation of knowledge in the West all the way to now and influences stuff like how we think about mental illness and disease and and good and bad and so on like it doesn't say that in at any point it doesn't even i mean it hints towards it but it doesn't even hint towards it in a clear way right like it it takes a very meandering path which is great right because these points are complicated and subtle and intelligent and hard to grasp and it handles them in that way right there's no like um what's the reference i'm looking for here there's no like didactic paragraphs explaining explaining the concepts to you, right? There's yeah, no filler. That would, that would undermine the whole point, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would but then the thing it's, it's talking about if it had that. Exactly, and then and it's also talking about like other ways of thinking, right? And um, other ways to circumscribe an idea and approach it from various different uh, ways, and and also breaking down prejudice of other perspectives, right? It talks a lot about how the rational, logical, well-spoken individual oftentimes ignores best-case scenario or actively seeks to silence more, you know, um, subtle, soft, softer, less um, comprehensible understandings of a topic. Now, take that and pair it with, you know, people who might not be the subtlest of readers. And if you read it on the surface level, this book is about nothing much, right? Like if you just read the events. Um, but of course, example, that's the, not, um, yeah. One of the um, brain geniuses on YouTube here calls it a bad dystopian, <laughs> calls it a bad dystopian novel. <laughs> Brilliant. What? Yeah, you, you got it. You nailed yeah. that one. I think, Good I think job, it's also interesting. KD books. Yeah, Thanks, I think it's man. also yeah. Good job, you have contributed positively to the discourse. Um, I would really love to read a dystopia that's like pleasant. You know, it yeah. is a dystopia, but you know, you're like, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's cool. Yeah, just read YA then. That's what. That's like ninety percent of YA books. Um, everything is this destroyed. Guy, this but... guy has a, a a copy of Berserk on his shelf. How in the fuck can you? Again, this is what I mean. By like they can they can put words next to each other, but they don't know what they mean. They can't. I'm surprised they know what sentences are that like words can have holy, interrelation okay, shit. Okay. that isn't this, inherent to the word. Okay, this is going to cause you pain. I think <laughs> I, I'm looking. I'm looking hard. It, this is a, a YouTube like um, what's it called? Image like a, a cover Thumbnail? image for the episode. Thumbnail. Thumbnail. Yeah. Okay. He's got a Donatart secret history, pretty normal. He's got a, a big, thick copy of Berserk. He's got the Deloriad because that's what he was reviewing. I think he has um, Mordu on there as well. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> shut, I know. shut the fuck up. I knew it would cause you pain. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Howard, I was going to. What it said. I was going to bring Mordu up at some point in this episode due to the. I would describe them as mind bogglingly intense similarities. Um, especially in terms of the overall project of the text. Um, I, I'm going to go cool down. You guys take over. <laughs> so while, while Langdon cools off, I think it is interesting, though, to ask the question, 
how does this novel communicate with the dystopian um, genre and what it does with dystopia. And while I was reading it, um, and this will make one of our listeners very happy, Nate, shout out to um, Nathan. He has been trying to get me to read Brian Evanson for a really long time. And I finally picked up Immobility, which is also a weird dystopia that doesn't coalesce into like any happy message also has like a lot of body hall stuff and i'm not going to go into immobility but the novel is called immobility and also by the way um, the protagonist is um disabled and can't walk but the point of the calling the genre immobility is this exact same idea that the deloriad gets through which is humanity clinging on to survival at any price like they've created a completely sorry about the term that sometimes you know bad people use, but a degenerate sort of society, right? In, in by the way, in the most literal sense, it degenerates from generation to generation, right? Um, it's the novel really hammers home how they are unable to produce anything. <laughs> they try to farm, they fuck it up. They try to make art, they fuck it up. They try to create relationships. They destroy them. The only person making anything is the school teacher. We'll get to him, the schoolmaster. But everybody else is stuck in this lethargy. And the book asks, why? Like, why survive at any cost? And of course... It's something we've, yeah. we've, we've come up with against a lot on this show. Like, with, with all the Dying Earth books we've done... Um, yeah. I mean, in in our talking about Elden Ring, it came up a ton. The just the whole like um, the old world is dying, the new world can't be born. Um, yeah. A declining, dwindling life, uh, as it's put in the novel, which is a, a quote from a, a Borges article about ideas of eter- hell being eternal. Um, I just read that fucking essay recently, by the way. Um, yeah, it's really good. God, I love Borges. Um, yeah. And yeah, and just the idea of why, why, how, and why can this be eternal? Why should it be eternal? Why can't it? Why can't stuff just end? If it's bad, it can end, and a new thing can begin. Kind of There's like also, the, of course, uh, go a, pu- a moth, um, a caterpillar becomes a moth. But. Um, yeah. There's a there's a kind of mindset shift that you can encounter in periods of profound pain and suffering uh, and it tends to either it, it is always transformative but in one manner or another sometimes it gives you this sort of pernicious sense of endless hope um that the pos the the passage through this sort of psychic threshing has um hardened you enough that you now no longer really feel you know that kind of pain or terror not that you don't feel fear or anxiety but you know you you sort of pass through this this horrid window and you go things can work out you know you can put your back to the the wheel another one equally as calming equally as serene is is something closer to what this book um i think draw it, it at least resonates with that in me of um the way that nietzsche talked about like uh a schopenhauerian sense of like profound pessimism re-emerging as a kind of amor fati uh rather than 
I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's this profound. How, how can you read more do and not get the, I'm in oh, pain wait, again. Wait, 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 Langdon, Langdon, Langdon. Before <laughs> I'm you go in, back I'm to in, the fucking thing, I want to say that, like, <laughs> I think the entire point of the book is to, like, hit on that last point that you said about Amal Fati and say both the, I'll, I'll start it again. Yes, denying like the meaninglessness of existence and trying to keep going, creating meaning all the time is stupid. But the Nietzschean answer is just as bad. This idea that you can, if you only convince yourself that actually being trapped in an eternal hell is good for me, actually, because I'm built different, that's not a solution. That, that doesn't result in, supposedly what Nietzsche said, that would result in happiness. But it doesn't. Right? Like the characters in the book who are supposedly resigned to their lethargic fate and to slowly dwindling away, i.e. the younger generation, all become nihilistic murderers who desire power for power's sake. Right? Like the book, I'm not going to spoil the very ending, but the book ends with the matriarch deposed and a trio of her sons nominally taking over, even though someone else is... Um, I'm going to spoil it. And if you've read the Bible, you know where this is going. Right? Dolores, of course, is at the end like the source of power, right? like the meek shall inherit the earth and all that stuff. And we'll talk about that in a second. But they they say, uh, uh, Jacob, right? the, one of the, the guy who gets um, crowned, quote-unquote, as the inheritor, he's just going through the motions. And even the more active of that Trumvirat, one of them is called Adam, they're just doing things to do them. And copying the matriarch even down to exactly mannerisms and her pointless tapping away on a keyboard that doesn't work and so on. Exactly. So I kind of feel I, like I did really appreciate, I yeah. did really so, appreciate the, the adoption of um the 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 truth embodied through the nation of Islam that the degeneration of the world is caused by Jacob and his um pale Yakubian <laughs> devils. Yeah, yeah I think that's just like, that's uh that that might just it, be like nature of Islam story. podcast now. <laughs> we're 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 five percenters here. Guys, guys, uh for, for to you one Wu Tang clan song and um that's happened now. For you being on the list is like a theoretical joke for me is like uh <laughs> hellish reality <laughs> given where i currently reside um but to just tie like um what i said together the solution that the book offers is a true the meek shall inherit the earth right and williams kind of like calls she she even quotes the, the that scripture specifically only once which i thought was really clever um but what what well, she says many things in the book, but one of the things that she says is, who are these meek if not actually weak and disabled and quote-unquote limited individuals, right? Like when Christians read that passage and they imagine the meek, they imagine themselves, right? They imagine like the non-rich, right? The non-powerful. But what she says is, is that really the meek? Like when you look around you, is that really the people you think a different model will come from. And she shows that, no, it's not just about taking the people who are perceived to be at the bottom of society and putting them on top. There needs to be like an actual radical change in how we think about truth 
and knowledge, right? Because Dolores ends up being the the queen, right? The, the prophet, the, the source of any chance of hope for something else, right? She's the only like doorway for which things might might improve. Um, and I think that's brilliant. The, the last step that she does, which runs through the entire book, and I'll tie this to the meek um, and then shut up, is animals. Right? Yeah, There's a lot of... Say the, the eight yeah. chickens and a bunch of worms. <clears throat> yeah, chickens, worms, but also plants and other forms of life. Like, okay, we didn't talk about this yet, but the, the, the guys, the, the, the children in, in the book also watch a TV show <laughs> on VHS, I think, um, called Get Aquinas In Here. Which is the best part of the book? This is like like the like the tonal core of the book. You, you've probably like if you haven't read it so far, you're probably thinking this is like a, a grim, like almost like the road kind of really hyper realistic yeah. grim post apocalypse. Yeah. No, it isn't. It it's at times very silly and it's it's yeah. not realist. It's not a so, procedural but, uh, but, of how to survive in the post apocalypse at all. And I think no, it's not like the Martian that for the post-apocalypse. Yeah. It's um, stylized to the fucking bone. Yeah, oh, so Get Aquinas in here is is a show that they watch um, where St. Thomas Aquinas, but I need you to understand, like him having not died, right? Not like <laughs> metaphorically or like time travel. He has been alive it's, for it, 700 it, it's years. Not, it's not presented as fiction. The show is presented as functionally like a talk show. Oh, it's, it's, it's a sitcom. Call Thomas it's a sitcom. Yeah, yeah, it's a sitcom. So, so Aquinas um, <laughs> and the sheep, um, and the sheep, they solve crimes, or not just crimes, also like sticky situations, <laughs> right? Like it's almost like the, uh, the Jerry Springer. Also, um... the sheep can also talk. Yeah. Yes. But so. As time goes on, I mean, this is a book on death sentence, so you know that as time goes on, the lines between the show and reality start to blend. Some characters are shared. Some of the conditions and the events that happen in the quote-unquote reality of the book bleed into the show and so on. But what's really important is that, (laughs) I love this so much, Thomas Aquinas in the show sucks. He's bad. He's not a saint. He's awful. He's only a saint by virtue of having survived this long. Like there are multiple times where Williams describes his sainthood as having slowly accrued over the years. And it's just by virtue of him surviving and and going on. And the actual saint is the sheep, right? The sheep is the one who has the answers. And the sheep is like an asshole towards Aquinas, right? It's like, but it's not like an asshole in the sense that it like tortures him. I think it just silently judges him with his sheep eyes. Like, you're a fraud, and I know you're a fraud. And, I, and to tie it to what I was just saying, like Williams is saying here, the meek are not like a bunch of saints who, I don't know, gave up office in the Roman Empire or um, dedicated their life to being in a monastery. They lived powerful, like Thomas Aquinas was a political powerhouse in his own life, right? Um, the actual saints, the actual innocents, are animals. Right, they're the ones who are without sin. It's hard not to read this, and, and this is why I find baffling about people who harp on about the presumed cruelty of texts like this. It's the same kind of problem that you 
I'm going to throw out a hyperbolic comparison, admittedly, but it would be like watching Night and Fog and saying that Night and Fog is a bad film because it's too cruel. And you go, it's about how the Holocaust is bad. Like, <laughs> and this is a problem that affects a lot of texts, not just this one in specific. Again, the ba- I'm going to try to refrain. I'm going to reference what Gareth said without causing myself psychic pain. This is my task. Just like in Berserk, profound cruelty and profound violence are displayed. Same with same with Cormac McCarthy. Lots and lots of other texts. William Faulkner does it quite a bit as well. But the point isn't reveling in it. The point is holding a very bleak mirror. And yes, deliberately leaning into certain aspects of life. Like there's an aspect of the constructionism of a text like this where she is deliberately stripping away the, the positive or rejoiceful aspects of being alive. But that's because it's you can't make a book that comments on everything unless you're, what, James Joyce or Thomas Pinchon? There's like two of those guys ever. <clears throat> Typically, a text is focusing on some aspects, some kernel, and that which naturally emerges from it of some evocative core. And texts like this tend to focus on a kind of hyper-pessimism more to do one of two things. One is to highlight the realities of the profundity and universality of certain kinds of suffering that we are typically rendered blind to. Um, If you follow anything about disability activism, um, that's something that I tend to have to take in measured doses because it's it's fucking heartbreaking. Um, it's it's insane and infuriating the level of profound and consistent, deep and real ableism that is like profoundly harmful that we just sort of see around us and have an invisible tolerance for because it's made invisible. And the other one is to kind of get to an actualized post nihilistic point. That it's like, it's not meant to throw this in your face to overwhelm you and go, ah, look at how nasty it is. Ah, I'm so nasty. Ah. It's, <clears throat> and not necessarily as a pure motivation, but it's like, sim- like acceptance with a lowercase a mean, it means the version of um, what Gareth is bringing up about certain interpretations of Nietzsche and thought of like, hell is good actually. Um, but acceptance with a capital A is like, this is real. I can't. I can't do anything really motile until I acknowledge and accept on a fundamental level the reality of the space around me. I just, I can't, it drives me up the wall that it doesn't shock me, sadly, but it drives me up the wall that someone would read this and seemingly take it as a dispassionate text rather than hyper-compassionate, like scaldingly compassionate (laughs) Yeah, it's it's the compassion of of uh, of Christ in in many ways, right? Yeah. Like the acceptance of the pain of others, but but in a much deeper way than is usually um, accepted, right? It goes one step further and really asks questions about how that compassion would actually work. Gareth, you want to do music? I do. Um, let's do... <laughs> good because it's just because it's quicker. Uh, fast I will do uh, a band I've known about for a while f- called Smolder. Um, hell yeah! Oh uh, hell yes! So um, I, I like know these guys personally. Right, I used to. I haven't actually really spoken to them in a, a 
three or four years, uh, four or five years now. Um, so they're formed in uh, Calgary, Canada. Um, they've since decamped to Helsinki in Finland. And since like 2019, they've been doing like epic power metal, but not in the sense of something like. Um, God, who, who are those awful people? It's not like Ailstorm or... Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, not even in the sense of some someone like... Um, I, I could totally blank it on name. Like Manowar. German, big German... Oh, Manowar, Manowar is probably... Manowar is probably closer to what they're doing. Who, who's that like big German... Yeah, I was going to say like... No, uh, wait. Uh, if you're looking for comparisons, this is like firmly within what we've been seeing in the last like seven or eight years, the traditional heavy metal revival. So think yeah. about yeah. Visigoth, Blazonrite, Eternal Champion. Um, this yeah, is the I kind mean, of space. Like, that a, like a classic band, they're, they're probably most like, like Seraph Ungol. Yeah. Probably some... Yeah, there's and there's a a term that gets thrown around for this kind of stuff called U.S. power metal, which is um to to not the, overly this, bore, yeah, but I also, I, well, I mean, it, it at least it at least shares space with that in the same way that like epic no metal, one, no one, new yeah, metal, traditional heavy metal, and U.S. power metal are well, all they touch. <laughs> they're not the only same you thing. And I care about this. Only you and I care about this. Yeah. It's our fucking podcast. Welcome to hell, bitches. <laughs> uh, anyway, the the band's is fucking great. The band is it's absolutely yes. spectacular. Yeah. yeah, it is swords and sorcery, um, Frank Franzetta ass metal. It's yes, so it's so good. All, all the uh, covers are big titty barbarian ladies with swords. It's so good. Um, and the album that they're coming out with now is called Violent Creed of Vengeance. Um, so we're going to play the title and first track off that album, which is called Violent Creed of Vengeance. Uh, it's really good. Um, and it's out on... Uh, uh, hmm, there's, I don't even know what... It's already out. It was released um, this Friday, April 21st. Oh, record label. Oh. They might be unsigned, actually. How do they unsigned like it? Cruise so good. Um, uh, I will check. Oh, it's Cruz Yeah, of course, of course yeah. it is. Cruz del Sur, like runs this entire like traditional heavy metal space. Got it. Yeah. Uh, oh, they've even got a quote from Michael Moorcock. Uh, some narration yeah. from Michael I'm, Moorcock on the album just because... I, I, I didn't want to like barge in, but uh, the, the previous albums have featured like several tracks based on the Eternal Champion, which we will get to one day. We will. Um, <laughs> Fun yes. fact, I've never read any Eternal Champion shit. Hang, hang up it the call. It's going to be my first hang time. Hang up the call. Do the music. I don't want to talk to Langdon anymore. Enjoy the track. <laughs> okay, technically, I've only read like the Jerry Cornelius books, which are technically Eternal Champion books. This is a big multiverse. But, um, Very technically. Anyway. It's a multiverse. They're all the same guy. Um, okay. Anyway, here Are is. They? Uh, <laughs> um, here is Violent Creed Avengers by Smolder. <laughs>
okay, um, I, ha I hate you guys, but I hate myself more. <laughs> so it kind of works out. Um, let's talk about the schoolmaster, shall we? I love that guy. Uh, He's a, yes, the, the best school... <laughs> Just a cool guy. It's just a solid dude. Um, yeah, he's so he's so fucking good and regular. Those yes. are the two words I'd use to describe him. So I, this I'd is like the to fil just well, chill with that guy and like pound BLs and watch the game. Ideal. I think a, did you just say BLs like like boy love <laughs> manga? No, but Bud Light. Oh, I was like, <laughs> what, what the hell? <laughs> you ever read gay manga and watch, watch Nightmare, sports? Yeah, Nightmare, you know, like, like, we like, like, hang out in the, in the basement on, like, a really hot couch and read, like, some, some like, uh, Yuri on Ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say, now I know why the couch is hot. Nightmare, <laughs> yeah. Blunt Rotation. The schoolmaster from the Laureate. Um, who else? Master Golos from the Book of the New Sun. And uh, the guy from the physio physiognomy. I was just about to. I was literally just about to say that. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're all the same guy. They're all the same guy for sure. They're so... the eternal champion of nasty men. <laughs> yeah. The the, the eternal Ford... reply guy. Yeah, Jeffrey Ford, Missouri Williams, and Gene Wolfe shared universe. Um, so the schoolmaster. Doing a whole. Philip Jose Carver? Was that the name of the guy? What, the Mars? The Mars uh, Planet and Sword and Planet books? No, the the whole... Uh, he did like... Uh, oh, Jose Faldo. Yeah, he did... A, the Wold Newton family, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, doing yeah, the right. Wold Newton family of books with nasty man. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so the schoolmaster is... Well, again, I keep spoiling the plot, but this is not a book for the plot. He's the fourth person to have survived because alongside the matriarch and their uncle, you got to understand, he's only referred to as their uncle in the book. Um, their uncle's wife also survives the um, cataclysm, but then she dies. By the way, never explained exactly how she died, and there might be question marks on that. You can guess, yeah. Um, but the schoolmaster is the fourth person who survived, and he didn't survive with the trio. He was found in the city. He does not have legs. Um, here's a few fun facts about the schoolmaster. He does not have legs. He is wheelbarrowed into town um, to give the children lessons, wherein he reads stuff at them from both his memory and what little texts remain, but he doesn't really teach them. He just recites things at them and expects them to like absorb knowledge and also he gets paid for this teaching in fabric which he uses you know like bits and pieces the uh, torn shirts and so on which he uses to build a mound from which he believes the god moth will be born um moths famously eat fabric so if he builds this um mound the moths will congregate and they do it's covered in moths it's disgusting um and he will like enter the mound at some point and um emerge as the god moth uh, or it will consume him and through that the god moth will be born he yeah so that's a guy um he represents like what i was talking about earlier you know this like very um stagnant and stymied you know perspective on knowledge accrual where knowledge is like a series of quotes from the greats 
and a series of suppositions on how reality works that reality has to bend to, right? Like whenever the reality of the situation disagrees with the schoolmaster, he finds like how to twist things so that they fit his preconceived notions. And as the book goes on, he kind of, because of that, he kind of loses grasp on reality until he kidnaps a corpse of one of the children in order to put it. The the brilliant New York Times um, article had to be amended uh, when it was found out that people who don't have legs still have arms. Um, (laughs) They're not actually the same limb. So you can actually pick up even a corpse and like drag it with you if you don't have legs. Yeah, because one one of the points was like, one of the criticisms in the book is that a lot is unexplained, or in the review, sorry, but like, who cares? And yeah, there's like a time lapse where the schoolmaster finds the corpse of Malta, who has been impaled by a metal pole, by Jan. We haven't talked about Jan, by the way, but he's like the worst guy of them all. He's the strong-muscled leader of the children, the matriarchs, um, uh, not, not second-in-command, but her... Oh, the word escapes me. Like her muscle, her muscle exactly. Her enforcer, um, the guy who does her bidding, and he's just awful. And he kills um, Malta, and the schoolmaster finds the corpse and then drags it back to his um, apartment. We don't see how he does it, but it's implied that it's like sheer power of will because this guy has like a huge um, and powerful willpower. He takes the corpse, he puts it in the mound um, because, of course, the corpse will add fecundity and all that stuff, which is contrasted to the planting of, of you know, vegetables and, and so on, and just waits for this godmother thing to be born. Of course, the godmother thing does not <laughs> end up being born, and he is um, stuck in one of the higher levels of one of the apartments while the children have their revolution um, down below. What did you like best about the schoolmaster? like how sweaty he was. He seemed like a very sweaty <laughs> He guy. was very sweaty, um, yeah. Yeah, he's. Um, I mean, he, he is a, a a type of guy. As we That's know. so fucking true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> statements I've made so far, but uh, yeah, he's a type of guy in who is there to, I, I, I guess, add a little bit a different perspective on the whole critique the book is making, and say like these these last men who populate this book, one of their many traits is to come up with nonsense ideas that go nowhere and then stick to them no matter what happens. He's, he's like a, a QAnon guy or a, um, a anti-vaxxer or just any of these types of guy we've, we seem to spawn all the time. Like in the Black Death, he would be, he would be, shouting about how it's the end of the world and we need to eat dogs or something. He's like a type of guy who emerges at every uh, terrible time in human history to make it slightly worse by technically having hope. He does believe in, in change and things will be different, but he believes that it will come about through a god moth in his big sweaty pile of clothes that has a dead girl in it. And I mean, um, it's sort of... He he embodies that sort of classic figure of of the priest who, um, if we go back to our Dasadian critique of culture, of which that's an angle of this kind of stuff that I wish got tapped on more. Is how clearly indebted to um 
to the the method of critique that Desaad uses. Um, oh, he would be the priest. <clears throat> um, the yeah, the, this this struck me very much as like 120 days of Sodom, but you know, located in Prague instead of wherever Sodom was. I think France. I don't remember. It's been a million years, and I don't really intend to reread that book. Um, um, once was enough. Uh, but yeah, that figure who, through building this better world, I mean, the classic critiques of structures of faith that, you know, through building a better world or images of a better world or images of rebirth and stuff, you can convince people to debase themselves to an utmost degree or um, consign themselves to functional slavery because you've um you're promising things will get better um but i mean granted he does think what he's saying he's not he's not lying he's just crazy which is different <laughs> um yeah he also ties into like how to um proselytize his godmoth faith it's it's just him yeah he, does, he, he thinks that godmoth will emerge the world will burn and he'll it will just be him and uh, later it will be him and Marta in this like yeah as and the new Adam and I Eve think, of the Moth universe. Yeah, and to tie into that, like he is constantly waiting for this revelation or transformation to happen, and he is blind to the fact that the revelation and the transformation has already happened. Right, like one of the great forces that are described in the book is the light, which we understand to be radiation or just the. Um, yeah, the atmosphere and the pollution and so on after the cataclysm. And that's what morphs um, Agathe and Dolores and the other children. And in a sense, he always sees the light as, again, degenerative and evil and bad and so on. And he's thinking about his own transformation, missing the fact that the new generation, like the hope, the, the, the salvation, which is Dolores and Agathe, has already been um, provided. And not only does he fail to see that, he actively shies away from this um, new transformation. We have not read anything from the book, which I think, especially in this case, is important just to get across that that vibe. So I'm going to read like um, a paragraph about the, the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster opened his eyes, looked up at the ceiling, and felt a deep sense of unease despite his swaddling and the fabled security of his nest. He was thinking about the city. He wanted to forget that the city existed, to extricate himself once and for all from this tangle of metal and stone, and forsake it for the softer, more welcoming landscape of his dreams, but he couldn't. If he were to have his way, his slumber would never be interrupted. He would stay, nestled underneath the moth-eaten wool of his blankets, a great moth himself, and dream for another eternity. The sun couldn't touch him in here, though he knew that it peeled through the holes in the ceiling high above him, the terrible whiteness of this new age, scarring hieroglyphs, secret codes, and hidden threats into the moldering wallpaper of the upper rooms. Very good. This is like all of the Schoolmaster chapters are him like fantasizing about being a giant moth and escaping from the light and going to the dark places. But like both him, and I mean every single idea in this book and, and character is of course, I mean it's almost like uh, obvious to say it, but it's meant to be transposed into the present, right? It's meant to ask questions about, like you said, not, I think not just the QAnon or the anti-vaxxer and so on, but also, you know, people who just feel secure um, in their current 
uh, position in life and kind of dream about a coming utopia or like uh, some sort of liberation or a transformation without seeing, you know, how actual struggles and actually moving political lines and effects and actual climate change and stuff like that is already creating new kinds of people, right? And new kinds of thought. And all they're doing is trying to shut it out, trying to focus on their own comfort, on their own preconceived notions, on their, on Aquinas and, uh, you know, the greats, the ancestors and so on, instead of embracing the the powerful and painful transformations that are already happening. Yeah, he's... It, it, going back to the meek shall inherit the earth, he doesn't know that that isn't him. He, he, he isn't needed to inherit the earth. He's just a guy. He's a reminder of the old earth from before um, everything went wrong. I mean, he's he's not going to still be around after in the Doloriverse that is coming. Uh, I have a, I have a thing in my head that I, I've been thinking about for the past long while. It's actually ties back in a certain way to the comment about Borges. So the way Borges tends to work as, as a writer is he is intensely, um, He's intensely poetic to the point of it bleeding into a, a kind of figurative allegorical mode, um, because what is allegory but a type of really extended fugue-like metaphor, or poetic metaphor. Um, and this tends to give readers a lot of trouble, because they will they will stare at it and they'll go like, but why are the things happening? And you have to explain at a certain point that... That's the way that nonfiction works. That's the way that reportage works. But the way that fiction works is someone is constructing it for a purpose at all times. And even if on the surface that purpose seems to be plot-oriented, you can, like the classic thing that you learn in any kind of literary studies thing, when you put fiction on a page, you are putting evocations and fragments of your soul, your experience, the way that you have seen and integrated the world onto the page. And that's really sort of the heart of fiction. I bring that up because how the fuck do people read this book and the thing they think to say is, I don't know why things are literally happening in this world. Like, it doesn't seem obscure that this is like a deeply allegorical work. Like, as much as there isn't a lot that's explained within the text, I think the, the function of the text is at least baldly apparent. And so it's like that mode of critique is just such an alien thing to me for something like this. And also it's yeah, called yeah. the Doloriad. Right? right? Like that, I don't, that form inherently speaks, a, yeah, myth. Yeah, it's supposed to have the, the logics of Greek myth or biblical story. It's not supposed exactly. to have the logic of the Fallout games. And, or, and it's like, I can, I, I can follow something like um, because I because it's on my desk right now. I can look at I can see why someone would read something like Dahlgren and not necessarily immediately get why it's moving the way that it is because it deliberately is very modernist in its in its structuralism, which is to say that it's attempting to to system break in a certain way these these formal structures that would typically signify, hey, I'm moving in this mode, but this is very classicist 
in the way that it develops itself and presents itself. It, it strikes me as like, it should be deeply embarrassing that someone of like the New York, you said it was the New York Times review. Please tell me mm-hmm. it wasn't the New yeah. York Review of Books. Okay, thank yeah, God. Times. I'm like, those people can read. Um, but yeah, that, that someone of the New York Times should look at this and not put together. I mean, it reminds me of when that film, The Northman, came out. And I look through the reviews of um, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, LA Times, and I forget the one big London paper that isn't, well, not isn't hot garbage, but is of the similar New York Times. Um, It's just called The Times, isn't it? Oh, (laughs) maybe. I don't know. We name them after cities because we're not, you know, dumb fucks. It's it's technically called The Times of London, but um, it's just just Um, referred to as The Times. But I read the reviews of all four of those books. None of them mentioned that it was Hamlet. None of them. They didn't mention it. Like, it would be one thing if they did a name check, but it's like, what kind of, what kind of critic, this is intracritical criticism here, uh, talking shop with the boys. Um, What kind of critic can look at something where the form is so abundantly clear and not comment on that form in in their work it's fucking mind-boggling to me <laughs> like yeah. it's no wonder that they read the book and get such a profoundly what feels like an almost like off-topic sense of discussion about the book where it feels wholly discontinuous from like the thing that i read um because it feels like again this is ties on a bigger thing that we've talked about a lot on the podcast the function of literacy and of reading is one word that encompasses a million different like micro tasks or like sub processes. And it but, feels but, like they've literally turned off some of these sub processes. Even more than that, to like hit on that point even harder and tie it back to the DeLorean, their method of thinking about things from top to bottom as a structure as something that will the parts must follow each other is exactly the type of thinking and creation of knowledge that Williams criticizes via the schoolmaster. Right? Like yeah. they're approaching this book as if it, it they were Thomas Aquinas trying to use scholasticism to figure shit out. And like maybe here at the the end of this uh, discussion, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll tell you what I mean in case you you haven't had the displeasure of reading Thomas Aquinas. Um, he was of the, um, well, literally school, right? Um, that believed that um, reasons could be logically inferred for everything and from everything, and that philosophy needs to be dispassionate, removed, and so on, and, and proceeding from primary principles, right? Of course, primary principle being God. And from God, you can infer logically everything and it leads to like horribly um dry and very um incisive without any um backup right like it it doesn't earn its incisiveness philosophy like saying things like war is bad unless it's between two christians Uh, sorry uh, if it's between two christians if it's against the heathens then it's good why because here are 10 biblical texts that support my claim Onwards to the next one. If someone rents a house and then they move in before the date that the contract begins, they must not be sued for uh, theft. Why? Because 
20 biblical references that I cite. Goodbye. Let's move on. It's like, a, a, can you think of a more like masculine, uh, chauvinistic way to think about reality? Like here are all these categories and here is how ev- everything fits into these categories. And that's what they're doing when they look at DeLoread and saying, this is a post-apocalyptic novel. Therefore, one, two, three, four, five things must happen. This is a yeah, book. It, it's so, the same as the yeah. like Greek uh, Roman statue Avi guys on Twitter looking at paintings by like Mark Rothko or someone and saying, that doesn't look like a thing. I like paintings like the ones that, um, for example, Hitler did of like, um, <laughs> like a building. It's a painting of a building. It looks like that thing. That's how it should be. There is a, there is one a single principle called reality and art is supposed to show you that thing. Therefore, because the Deloriad doesn't show you what life would be like if some nuclear bombs went off, uh, it is therefore a bad book. What's what's um, wild is we've seen the entire history of Western philosophy from about Hegel forward has been in some way an attempt to overthrow that mindset, that that highly rigid mindset. Now, I say from about Hegel, because Hegel himself wouldn't have considered himself really part of that project, but he obviously wound up becoming foundational to people um, where that became the, uh, the process. Marx's conception of history and, and Engels as well was partly built around overthrowing <coughs> that bizarre scholasticism, which... To to make blunt something that um, Eden was implying, basically acts, regardless of whoever the fuck is wielding it, to retroactively justify the structures that we already have that already behoove us. Like, they're not really meant to change or challenge anything. They're meant to provide justification. And the most insidious aspect of that is they're meant to do it without you realizing that's what you're doing. You believe that you're doing philosophy, but in reality, you're just building up justification for the world as it is, or intensifications of aspects of it. And the whole movement of of communism on a political end of something like, um, I mentioned Nietzsche a lot, but like Deleuze is really the guy who made him um, not shitty, to be blunt, um, but that whole Deleuzian kind of movement of which he's only one figure within the whole body of philosophy is sort of built and like modernist art is the same process of overthrowing that hyper rigidity of having like evocative art. The The way that Virginia Woolf wrote in the early 1900s when people were like novels are supposed to be about literally the events happening to literal people and she throws out um, to the lighthouse or Mrs. Dalloway, which is like, okay, I'll write about actual people, but I'm going to write about it so intensely evocatively that you're going to reject the thing that you got. Like we ignore sometimes that Proust got like scathing reviews when he started putting out his work. Um, he did get rave reviews in certain places, but that idea of like, I'm going to do a Tristram Shandy style hyper intensification of what you want to break it. Um, and it's just, that's the thing that baffles me is like, this is so foundational to the past several hundred years of the aesthetic development of art, the psychological development and scientific development of philosophy. And I'm very defensive of this book. I'm going to, yeah, I, but, I, but, no, it's, it's because off, it's so good. But maybe to close know. off, like the point is that like, the point is that the progress, which you think has been made has not been made. Like, this is what the book says. 
this idea that society has progressed past the um, Aquinas way of thinking and that because we have Nietzsche and Deleuze and all these other postmodern um, thinkers, that it is, has like changed the way that people see reality is wrong. And a lot of people still think about the world in terms of epistemological categories and they fit reality, they chop reality up to fit these little boxes. And to be clear, it's not just an epistemological, um, it doesn't stay within the sanitary epistemological space. It causes real life suffering. Because as the human female and so on. Exactly. Yep. Because as the postmodernists say, these epistemological categories dictate what actually happens with people's bodies. So when you defy those categories, for example, by being gender nonconforming or by being disabled or, or um, any other you know, of the myriad forms of expression that the human body is possible of, like being fat or being thin or being whatever you want, which is, does not fit into the categories that people use to perceive reality, cruelty ensues. And by the way, to extend this to like the veganism and animal rights debate, same thing there. Because a cow does not conform to the specific definition of suffering that we have randomly opposed on, imposed on reality, then the cow's suffering is completely erased from reality. If you do not fit the epistemological framework, then it's not just that you're, not, that you're wrong. You also, you don't exist you are unintelligible you you do not fit into the order of things as as Foucault would say right so and this book does such a fantastic job of explaining how that works and like how cool all of us really are to any subject which is not included within the confines of the um, systems of knowledge which we which we have built it's yeah, not it, shocking it's a, it's a, it's a, oh sorry you go on um, yeah, I mean, I was just about to say it, it's a queer book at the end of the yeah. day. It's, yeah. There's nothing sec- not in the sexual sense, but in the sense of queerness being non-normative anything. I mean, literally we bring up, I'm going to bring up one of my favorite papers of all time that always gets fucking misread. And it's that one about um, a paper about queer bodies. And it's referring to specifically drones and drone warfare and how that queer is the act of warfare. I yeah. bring that up because this is a paper that's very good and should not have ever escaped the bubble that it was written in because it's talking about the way that the fact that now to do war, you don't even have to go through the brutal psychological and physiological training. You don't have to suit up and face the terror of missiles and bullets and bombs and the looks, the look on the faces of the people that you've killed, all these really horrible things that typically exist to temper the urge toward war. The fact that now you can get up at 6 a.m., drive to your office job, but your office job is manning a drone that blows people up and then go home and have dinner. This is queering in the technical sense, in the academic sense, our notion of what comprises war and through it, our analytics of what war is and what war does to the mind start to completely fall apart in our hands because we we're not talking about war when we talk about those functions. We're talking about the material realities of things. And those material realities are now fundamentally different. And this falling into that similar rubric of interrogating the queerness of, which is another way to say like the otherness or the outsideness or the outsiderness of. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, just, so, oh, it's so toothsome. I'm like, I think, mm. I think uh, a Langdon's laptop is starting to die. <laughs> I hope, and, and I hope uh, we haven't even mentioned it. the prose yet. I, I'm just going to very briefly. The prose is incredible, and it is. Yeah. It, this book is 210 pages long. It feels like it took longer to read than it would like a 600 page book. This is so. It, it's like thick and soupy. It's like crawling through one of those swamps in a Dark Souls game where you're constantly taking damage. You can barely move. You have to roll everywhere. It's just and it's just disgusting and. Yeah, it's just and and yet it's like a exhilarating experience just to have like gone through that. Yeah, yeah just so excellent prose. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, all good. Um, I think we'll bring this uh, discussion to a close with some excellent technical death metal. How does that sound? Um, this ahead. one has been causing quite a stir in uh, metal circles. And it is the first uh, single from Lunar Chamber's upcoming album, Shambolic Vibrations. Uh, yes! so I, don't know if you know this <laughs> I fucking love this album! Yeah, so I don't know if, if, if you know this, uh, dear listener, but there's like, like a whole... Watercolor. So, yeah, come on. <laughs> the cover is great. Um, but there's like a whole subsection of progressive metal and death metal, which draws its inspiration from like um, Eastern philosophy hippie and aesthetics. Shit. A lot of, sorry? Hippie shit. Hippie shit, yeah. Oh yeah, you know it, brother. A lot of it is like non-self-aware and ends up being pretty cringe, but this is of the self-aware variety. Um, these guys who are in Pittsburgh are gearing up to release this debut EP. No one has heard of them and suddenly they're like blowing up everywhere because the music is just so good. I've listened to the full thing. It is incredible. But the single... Uh, Spirit Body and the Seeing Self is very good. Potentially the best track um, on the release and has been getting um, the accolades which it deserves. The album releases on April 28th, which is uh, this Friday for when we post this. Um, and I very much encourage you to check it out. It's technical without losing you know, uh, melodic sense. It is um, complex without being overwrought. And it's just really, really well-made, um, technical and, and progressive uh, death metal. Please do read The DeLoread by Missouri Williams. This book deserves to be read by many more people because it is has something essential about it, right? Something that is crucial to our moment. And until then, uh, please enjoy um, Spirit Body and the Seeing Self by Lunar Chamber. Thank you for listening and bye-bye.